All right, so yesterday was Christmas, right? All right, yeah, it was. So um, anytime it's Christmas, you know, the one time of year that it is Christmas, um, I often end up thinking, and I'm sure you are the same, that I think about Jesus and his humanity, right? Because that's the time that we celebrate that Jesus, being fully God, also became fully man in the form of a baby in the manger. And we talk about that a lot for Christmas. So in thinking about Jesus and his humanity, I started thinking about <clears throat> how Jesus is related to Adam. And that's an interesting biblical relationship. We're going to talk about that today and kind of go through all of that. But before we do, we're going to discuss biblical types and the study of biblical types, which is biblical typology. So we'll start with a definition. What's a biblical type? It is a person, people, events, ceremonies, objects, positions, like offices, like the priestly office, or even places in the Old Testament that foreshadow one of those things in the New Testament. Um, the Old Testament person or thing is called a type, and the New Testament person or thing that is being foreshadowed is called the antitype. Let's take a look at an example. I'm going to have to turn around. <clears throat> First Peter chapter 3. In it, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. The water that Peter is talking about here is the waters of the flood in, in Noah's time. They were saved through water, and this water, the waters of the flood, symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So you can see that Peter is employing the use of a type here, and it's indicated by this word that's underlined, symbolizes. So the type in this portion of scripture would be the flood waters. And the antitype is baptism. That's the thing that's being foreshadowed by the waters of the flood. That's the fulfillment of that thing. We'll look at another example. Hebrews 9.24. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. So our indicator here that um, a type is being employed is this word a copy. And so we can see that the type in the Old Testament is the earthly tabernacle. And the antitype, the fulfillment of that, is heaven. And that's what's being portrayed here. That's just a couple basic examples of how types are used in the New Testament. And uh, types are a common thread. They're really fun to study because they connect the entire Bible. They're all woven throughout. And they connect a lot of our Old Testament things to a lot of our New Testament things, and they're just fun to study. But not every Old Testament thing is a type, um, though there are many. So you can get kind of weird with types, like if you just look for them everywhere, if you try to see every Old Testament thing as a type, it can get kind of weird. I was reading about this, and uh, it's like, so there was a miraculous catch of fish in the New Testament. And how many fish were in the miraculous catch? Okay, so let's say there was 153. Now, what does the word or the numbers 153 mean in Hebrew? They mean this, which connects to this and this and this. And before too long, somebody's like, well, I can have 153 wives. Like, that's, that's weird. 
<laughs> that's, that's not how we want to use biblical types. And there's some safeguards in place to make sure that we don't just create theology out of thin air based on things that aren't there. So we'll take a couple, a look at a couple of the safeguards to how to recognize when a type is being employed. Um, we can look for specific indicators by the New Testament writers themselves. Sometimes they'll come right out and tell you, I'm going to talk about a type now. Other times, depending on the translation that you're reading, you can look for certain keywords. We've already looked at a couple. Words like copy, figure, pattern, model, symbol, and sometimes just the word type. You can also look for certain kinds of sentence construction, which we'll look at here in Matthew 12. So notice the sentence construction here. Pairing the words just as with the words so. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus here is indicating that Jonah's three days in the belly of the fish is a type of his three days in the tomb, in the heart of the earth. And you can see it by those words. Those are a couple key words you can look for. So another thing about biblical types and what makes them really effective teaching tools is that they are not perfect matches to each other. So the type will never perfectly match the anti-type. If it did, it would just be totally ineffective. Like it wouldn't do anything. What makes biblical types effective to teach us something is that they are different and they invite us to compare them, so they invite us to look at what are the similarities between the type and the anti-type, and then they invite us to see, to contrast them. What are the differences between the type and the anti-type? And when we do that, when we look at the similarities and the differences, um, we'll learn so much more about each element, about the type and the anti-type. And the way this works is that you're always pointed forward to the greater thing. You're always being pointed forward to the fulfillment of the type, which is the anti-type. And uh, you learn things about yourself, too, through these. They're actually really, they're just fun to study. I think they're intuitive, and I think that <clears throat> God designed them as such because he knows how our machinery works, because he's the one that created it. So I think this is intuitive to us, and it piques our curiosity and is just fun to study. So we are going to look at a particular biblical type today. This is what we're going to break down and apply our study concepts to. Romans 5.14, nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. So you recognize our key word, pattern. So Paul here is indicating a type. He is saying that Adam is a type of Jesus, who is the one to come. So I wanted to break that down. Let's get more into that. How do those two relate to each other? So the first thing we'll do is we're going to compare, right? Because that's the first thing we should do. Uh, we'll compare the two of them. <clears throat> now, most similarities between Adam and Christ are going to be played out before Adam falls. That's where most of the similarities lie. First off, and just a real simple low-hanging fruit, is that they were both human. Um, Adam was created a human, and Jesus, while being fully God, also became fully man. That's an important part of it. 
Um, so they were both human, but the first one I really want to focus on was how neither of them had a human father. Adam had no human father, and Christ had no human father. God was the father of both of them. Um, Adam was created by God in a special act. He did not proceed from a human seed, thus he has no earthly father. So let's look at that in scripture. Genesis 2-7, really familiar verse, very simple. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So that is obviously a special act of creation. That is not how I came to be, or you. So Adam had no earthly father. God was his father. Now, Christ is not a created being in this sense whatsoever. He has existed eternally as the son in the Trinity, and he was there at creation. And in that way, he is certainly without a father. Um, this similarity of being without a human father plays itself out most noticeably in the incarnation when Jesus came to earth. Um, when being fully God, he also became fully man. So let's look at that. That will be in Luke chapter 1. Uh, but the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. So Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. No human seed produced him in his incarnation, and it was a special act of the Spirit. Um, the scripture says that explicitly. His only father was God himself, so much so that he was to be called and known as the Son of God, and God addressed him as such as well. So that's the first element of comparison. Remember that neither of them proceeded from a human seed. God was their father. Let's look at the second element of comparison. They were both given dominion. Adam was given dominion, and Jesus was given dominion. Let's look at Adam's dominion first. Genesis 1. <clears throat> Let us make mankind in our image in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So, Adam has dominion over the earth, over all creation, as he's told by God a couple important key words that indicate dominion, which are rule and subdue. God says this three times in this portion of scripture. We can actually trace this dominion portion of the type between Adam and Christ all the way through scripture, from right here all the way to Jesus. And it's actually quite interesting. We'll look at the first connection here. Psalm 8, 4 through 7. 
What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. All flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. So the psalmist here, the person writing this, is clearly depicting Adam. He's just talking about man. I think he uses the word human. And um, he's talking about Adam. And it's this psalm, talking about Adam's dominion over created things, that serves as a linkage to Jesus, the fulfillment of the type. So we'll look at how that is applied. Paul actually quotes from this psalm and applies it to the dominion of Jesus, which I find interesting because in the Jewish tradition, there are psalms that are referred to as messianic. And they believe that those psalms point forward to the Messiah that they are waiting for. They specifically apply to that Messiah. Um, To my knowledge, what I looked into, this psalm, Psalm 8, is not one of those. So I find it interesting that Paul still uses this to apply it to Jesus. Now, maybe, I don't know everything Paul understood. Maybe he always understood this psalm as being messianic. I like to think of it. This is just Brie talking as a glimpse into Paul's increasing revelation and learning about who Jesus was once he was born again. And I like that because that's the experience that we go through. When we come to know Jesus, we continue to learn about who he is and what he did. So I just like to think of it in terms like that. So Paul quotes this psalm and applies it to the dominion of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 28. Then the end will come when he, Jesus, hands over the kingdom to God, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put everything under his feet. Do you see that in quotes? Um, Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, this clearly does not include the one who put everything under him. And when all things have been subjected to him, then the son himself will be made subject to him who puts all things under him so that God may be all in all. So you can begin to see the progression from the lesser dominion of Adam to this much greater, this foreshadowed dominion of Jesus. And the Psalm 8 keyword stuff is used again by the writer of Hebrews. And it's almost exactly the same way. So as I read this, look for those keywords that are from Psalm 8. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 9. But there is a place where someone has testified. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So we don't see everything subject to mankind, like God said in Genesis, right? We don't see that. But we do see Jesus, who was made like us. He was made like us for a little while in his incarnation. 
And now he is exalted to the highest place with everything in subjection to him in this age and in the age to come, fulfilling man's call to have dominion. And right here in the right now, not yet, actually partially restoring that to us and putting the guarantee, the hope within us for the complete fulfillment of that restoration at the end of all things, when all things um, come into completion and fulfillment. So for um, more of a picture of the completed Christ in terms of the dominion part of the type, we can look at Ephesians 1. I ask, this is Paul, and he's, he's praying here. He says, I ask that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know the hope of his calling, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and the surpassing greatness of his power to us who believe. These are in, in accordance with the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in the present age, but in the one to come. And God put everything under his feet and made him head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So can you see this progression from the dominion of Adam in creation to Christ? He's seated at the right hand of God with everything in subjection to him in this age and in the age to come. That's the fullness of the dominion. So the last part that I want to compare them in for the type is that both Adam and Christ are what's called federal heads of humanity. What does it mean to be a federal head of humanity? Adam, as the first human, is the head or source of the entire human race. And Jesus, as the second or last Adam, is the head of new creation. And if you are a new creation, your origin is in Jesus, as he is the head. And every human being is either in Adam or in Christ. The two federal heads. There's no other spot that you can be in. You are either of the man of the earth or of the man of heaven. We all fit into those two camps. So we'll look at a couple of scriptures that point this out. 1 Corinthians 15. The first man was of the dust of the earth. That's Adam. The second man is of heaven. That's Jesus. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. And then we have Colossians 1.18, who talks about Christ in this regard. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So Jesus, as the firstborn from among the dead, he is the source for all life, spiritual and eternal, for those who believe. He's the source of all life, spiritual and eternal, for us, the church. So... I'm sure that there's more exhaustive lists that do more comparison, but these are just the three I wanted to focus on um, in terms of similarity. So the next thing we'll move into is contrast. And in order to do that, we will work just from this portion of scripture. 
in uh, Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. Let me stop here for a second. Paul is beginning a thought here in verse 12. At the end of verse 12, he anticipates someone asking a question. He anticipates someone listening to him and saying, well, wait, how can people sin apart from the law? How can that happen? He anticipates that question and he answers it, starting in verse 13, where he says, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. Now in verse 15, Paul returns to his original train of thought that he started out with. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in, so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So there is a lot in there in terms of contrast. This is a great passage to break down and look at what are the differences between Adam and his trespass and Jesus and his gift. So to make it easier to understand, I thought I'd break it down into a graph. You guys have no idea how long I took to try to fix this little blip. And in the end, I just ended up settling on like, this is a manifestation of sin and fallen world (laughs) is that you can't fix that. (laughs) It was so frustrating. (laughs) So we'll break this down into a graph. First thing I want to look at is let's look at disobedient Adam. He acted in disobedience while Christ acted in obedience. And I want to read to you what Adam's disobedience sounded like, because it's very important, because it establishes a pattern for the disobedience of the rest of humanity. So this is in Genesis 3, 6, which reads, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. So their disobedience was brought on by the decision to trust themselves to define what is good. So they looked at something, and they saw it, and they said, that's good. I'm going to go get it. Now, if you remember, 
in the account of creation, God creates a bunch of stuff. He names a bunch of stuff. And then at the end of the day, he looks at it and he says, this is good. And that is repeated over and over throughout the creation account. And there's a reason for that. It's showing us that the one who defines what is good for all of creation is God. That's his job. He is the definer of good. And the very first time that human beings take that responsibility for themselves, the responsibility to define what is good for me, it ends in the worst disaster for all of mankind forever. And that's an important piece for us to remember. We don't define what's good for ourselves. God defines what's good. And Jesus is our fantastic example of this. So Jesus was obedient and his obedience came from he was trusting the Father to define what is good. What does that sound like? Um, Hebrews 10:7 says, "Then I said, this is Jesus talking, "Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God." Jesus is always portrayed and because he always was in a position of humble submission to the Father. He was submitted to the Father's plans and purposes. He was submitted to the Father's pleasure in everything that he did. And it sounds a whole lot different than Adam, who decided to define his own good. So that is the first couple columns. Let's keep moving. So in the second row, uh, the one trespass for all came through Adam. And the one gift for all who will believe came through Jesus. You can kind of see here a picture, again, of the federal heads of humanity. You are either in one, you are either a partaker of the trespass of Adam, or you are a partaker of the gift through Jesus. Um, the next row, through the trespass of Adam, came death and sin. And death here means both physical and spiritual. And Paul often connects those two types of death. Um, it was a spiritual death in the sense that we were separated from God and spirit. And um, we we're also bound uh, to die a physical death. And uh, we certainly do. Um, and in Jesus, life here means both spiritually in terms of our ability to reconnect with God. And it means um, our ability now through Jesus to triumph over physical death through resurrection. So he gives us life in both senses of the word where Adam brought death in both senses of the word. And um, sin, sin came through the trespass of Adam. Sin here means missing the mark of God. It means falling short. I'm sure those words echo in your head. All have fallen short. Um, and uh, that came through Adam. And I keep losing my place. <clears throat> and then through Jesus came grace. Uh, grace, the unmerited favor of God. Um, and I find this interesting because if you look here, it's kind of as intuitive in that these are opposites. Death, life, deserved, undeserved. But here we have sin and grace. It seems to me that the opposite of sin would just be hitting the mark of God. It would just be perfection, um, which ultimately in the fulfillment at the end of all things will be what we are. We'll just be made perfect. But right now, we're made perfect through Jesus. And um, even while we're still here in this imperfect, messed up world, as imperfect and 
messed up people sometimes, um, we still have God's unmerited favor. We still have grace through Jesus, which is it's just such a gift to us. It's amazing. And that takes us right down into here. The consequence for Adam's disobedience, the consequence for his trespass was deserved. God said to him, God said to them, <clears throat> don't eat from that tree because if you do, you'll die. <laughs> and they did it anyway. And we do die. <clears throat> it was deserved. Um, the gift that we receive as partakers of Jesus is completely undeserved and itself was prompted by many transgressions. Sin was just growing and compiling from the moment that it entered the world. It was this huge downward rolling snowball, and there was utterly less and less ways out the bigger it got. It just became more apparent that there was no way out for us. But God provided the way out through Jesus while there was no way, and he did it for us while we were still sinners, right? There was nothing redeemable that we did in and of ourselves to deserve that. It's just the unmerited gift of God. So next, through Adam's trespass, for all who are in Adam comes judgment and condemnation. Adam is judged, and he's condemned as guilty for his trespass. So there's going to be consequences for that, and we live in those, and we see those um, all around us in the world. Through the gift, all partakers are acquitted. This is the legal language that we often talk about in what Jesus did for us. Um, all partakers of the gift are acquitted of their guilt that came through Adam. They're justified through the one righteous act of Jesus, and there's no longer any condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ, right? That's a, that's a verse we're very familiar with. No longer any condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So next up is through the trespass came an increase in sin. So the law came in and sin increased is the way that our portion of Romans 5 puts this. When the law came in, people were no longer just sinning against God as it was ingrained on their conscience. Now that there was a law, they were knowingly transgressing God's word. Um, so in that way, sin increased. Also, when the standards were made plain, God's righteous standards, it just became more and more obvious that there was no way for human beings to measure up. There was no way for us to keep that. Also, when the law came in, Paul talks about the inflammation of rebellion. He says, I would not have known to covet unless the law had told me not to do it. <laughs> so all of these things are ways in which sin just continued to increase. But through the gift of Jesus, grace increases all the more as well. Where sin overcame man, sin overcame creation, Jesus overcame sin. So he is over everything. He has overcome all of it. There's nothing above him and there's nothing that he hasn't defeated from that fall. <clears throat> and uh, we actually see grace abounding more and more, and the kingdom forcefully advancing, even in the world around us today. If you remember, last time I talked up here was about um, Paul and his worldview. And do you remember how Paul expected the old age to just be consumed by the new? In a moment, he expected death, decay, and corruption to just be swallowed up by new creation. And actually, what ended up happening 
is new creation started to take place right in the midst of the old age when Jesus was resurrected. It was this burst of new creation energy. And ever since then, it's been expanding. It's been a growing right in the enemy's territory, which is just amazing. So sin did all this stuff and it was powerful, but then grace increased and it's still increasing today through us all over the world, through the spirit in us all over the world. So last column, last row, <clears throat> we have sin reigning in death. Oh, that uh, is, I felt like really interesting language. What does it mean for something to reign? What does that word mean? Well, sin reigning in death means that it exercised the highest influence over man. It controlled. Um, sin exercised dominion. It exercised dominion over us in death. That's pretty intense. For those who are in Christ, grace now exercises, it exercises the highest influence over us, and it has the final say. Grace reigns through righteousness. Think about that. Grace, the unmerited favor of God, reigns over you, has dominion over you through the approval of God that you bear because of Jesus. That is a really intense thing to think about. God's favor, his face looks at you in favor through his approval, because you bear his approval, because you are a partaker of the gift. That's like a, something that you get to work on for the rest of your life. That's your job. That's what you do, is you get to dwell on that for the rest of your life and figure out, how does, what does this even mean for me? What does this mean for what I should be doing? What does this mean for humanity? It's such a big thing that it's no wonder that immediately following this statement, Paul says, well, should we sin more so that grace may abound more? Because he knows this giant, amazing gift that he's just explained. And he's saying, hey, there's no loopholes in God's grace, so don't abuse it. <laughs> he's bringing it home like, yeah, this is your reality, but there's also other things that go along with it. And so this is such a macro concept. Like these are, these are big things to think about. This is like cosmologically significant for all time and for everything. So it's difficult to think sometimes, how do you make an application for something as significant as this? And I want to go back to that deepening revelation of who you are in Christ and what it means for you to no longer be in Adam, but to be in Christ. And when I think about that, I always think about Esau and how he despised his birthright. I mean, he had all of these things that were his according to his birthright, and he just gave it up for the cheapest thing. He gave it up for this bowl of stew. He gave it up for what his flesh needed at the time. And I, that's just something for us to think about for the rest of our lives is what do we give up that is ours in Christ because of the things we experience in our flesh? I mean, you could just think about that in your day-to-day -day life and it'll pop up all the time. I also think it's good to apply this in terms of um, what choices do we make? How do we govern ourselves in relationships? And what would it look like for death to have its way 
in whatever I'm going through right now? What does it look like for death? And by death, I mean this more than just simple terms of how we understand death, but like this overwhelming decay and corruption and negativity and the thing that we think of that kills, steals, and destroys, what would it look like for death to reign in my life, in my marriage, in the way I parent, in the way I do church, and the way I work and have friends? What does that look like? I don't, I don't want to participate in that because I'm no longer a partaker in the trespass. I'm a partaker in the gift. So what does it look like to live like I am actually partaking in the gift? And that's what we spend our lives doing is applying the amazing revelation that we are a new creation, that we are partakers in the gift that will eventually come to this incredible fulfillment that will blow our minds. We can't even conceive of it, but that it started right now. And then I get to make choices according to that right now about how I live, how I love, how I do everything in my life. It's like, what else do you need to do? That should keep you busy. You know, that's, that's what we work out for the rest of our lives. So that's the best I can think of for application um, for something like this. And it's a big job, but we have our whole lives to do it. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, help us to never give up our birthright like Esau. <laughs> help us to throw off everything that holds us back from living the way that you won for us. I pray that you would increase the revelation of what you did, who you are, and who we are in that for each of us, Lord. As we live our lives, as we do things that seem insignificant to the kingdom, Lord, I pray that your spirit would speak to us so clearly and say, this is one of those moments where you get to choose life or death. And remind us, Lord, that we are partakers in the gift. That is who we are. We are no longer in Adam. We are in Christ. Help us to live as such in all of our relationships and all of our doings, Lord. We want to glorify you. So we just surrender ourselves to you, Lord, and trust you. We love you and we thank you so much for all that you've done, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>